Hello and welcome to the Strength to be Human podcast with your host, poet and playwright, Mark Antony Rossi. In this, our second year, we continue to explore the meaning of being an artist in an ever-changing digital world. Now, without further ado, here is your host. Hi, folks, and welcome back to Strength to be Human. This is your host, Mark Anthony Rossi, poet and playwright. This will be episode 164, uh, another in the classic spotlight series. This one on thoughts on John Ashbery, uh, American uh, poet. Many consider the most influential of the American poets of the second half of the uh, 20th century. Um, died only about a few years ago. Actually, uh, born in uh, New York in 1927, he's a very interesting uh, a poet in the in the sense that he actually made his living primarily uh, from art criticism. He lived in Paris for five years, uh, and he spoke fluent French. Uh, but as he was uh, writing uh, critiques of art, uh, he began his poetry, and. Many, uh, I remember when I was growing up and, 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 and reading him, uh, considered him of the avant-garde fashion. So it was often not always understandable, I guess you could say. It was not always easy to read. Um, even though he talked a lot about being a surrealist or liking surrealism, uh, he always seemed to be me to be a more of an abstract expressionist type of writer. And you can see from his writing that oftentimes it's a, it's it's it can be thick in 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 various historical jargon, and and things that he's trying to explore or or explain because those are the two things that uh, Ashbery was really considering when he was writing. He was the the least confessional poet that you'll ever come across. I mean, he did not write about himself at all. In fact, he thought that was boring, so he never did that. Not that he felt himself like a person was boring. He just thought that the act of writing about yourself was kind of boring. That you already knew that stuff and you probably should be writing something else. That was just part of his own uh, philosophy. Now, he had a, I thought it was really interesting. Uh, he wrote his first uh, poetry book in uh, 1956 called Some Trees. Okay. And he won the Yale Younger Poet Prize for that. It was uh, judged by W.H. Uh, Autumn, someone he really uh, admired and who had later confessed that he didn't understand a word of the winning manuscript. So it, it, even in his very first uh, 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 real uh, attempt at uh, a serious writing, uh, folks had problem really understanding him. They thought what he was writing was, was interesting and, and even important, but they didn't really get it. And that's just not unusual for him. Um, he's considered his masterpiece would be... Um, a book he wrote called Self-Portrait in the Convex Mirror. It's a very long poem uh, collection. It's considered his masterpiece, and he won what's, what's called the Trifactor in Writing. Um, he won the um, National Book Award for this book, the National Book Critics Circle Award, and the Pulitzer Prize. Uh, no uh, American writer has ever won all three awards for for a single book of any, of any genre. And remember, he wrote... 
poetry in, in one for this. So it's pretty astounding uh, feat in itself. All right, let's let's read a little something here from uh, from some trees. This is the uh, the poem "Some Trees" from his first book, "Some Trees." These are amazing, each joining a neighbor as though speech was still a performance, arranging by chance to meet as far this morning from the world as agreeing with it. You and I are suddenly what the trees try to tell us we are, that their merely being there means something that soon we may touch, love, explain, and glad not to be invented. Such comingness we are surrounded, a silence already filled with noises, a canvas on which emerges a chorus of smiles, a winter morning, placed in puzzling light and moving. Our days put such resistance, these accents seem their own defense. So I think you can even see from that one, uh, one first early example of his, where the language is there and it, and it and it's lovely and it's not only is it poetic it, it, in many in many instances it makes you inspired it kind of uplifts you it allows you to deep dive a little deeper into things but you don't really have a full understanding about what he's trying to do it's one of the few forwards where you really have to read a couple of times to to get you know any kind of direction or meaning i don't think he purposely did that that's just sort of uh his his style and i think it, sometimes it made uh folks a little um <laughs> a little uh, 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 upset at times because they're like, I'm trying to get what this guy is saying. It's really ironic because when we read uh, some of his examples of art criticism, which we'll read on the show here, he, he tends to be extremely direct, easy to understand, and you're like almost conversational. You're like, why aren't you writing that way for a poet? But those were just two distinctly styles that he did. Remember, one, he was writing for money, it literally living hand to mouth in Paris. Uh, I think he, they were giving him like thirty dollars a column or something. So, and he's living in Paris doing this. And then, of course, later on, he becomes a professor and and he teaches and, and he teaches about writing. But he continues to to write uh, poetry. I believe that before he died, he had written thirty books. And I think only two of them had collections of his um, his art reviews, and then all the rest of them were poetry books. So he was definitely um, someone uh, mostly in, involved in in poetry. Now, what do we what do we mean when we say avant-garde? I can tell you, when I was growing up, they used to use that term almost like as a malicious manner. Oh my God, he's avant-garde. When we understand what he's saying, uh, it's too experimental. This, that, whatever. I don't know. To me, it, 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 sometimes they were using it as a weapon to hit you over the head with it, and it, to me, it was never really fair because. It's, it's, it's definitely a, an established form of artistic uh, thinking and direction in all different sorts of ways, not just in writing. You know, sure, it's French, but I, I, I always found it to be extremely, uh, to me, it, it just inspired me. It made me, it made me think more than, than think less. And I, I think that it's real important with writing that it can't always just be about what we're feeling, but what about what we're thinking? And maybe making other people to think. That's also useful for for art. Okay. Um, let me see here. There's a couple of definitions over here. Uh, the Webster's uh, say it, um, the definition of avant-garde. An intelligentsia that develops new or experimental concepts, especially in the arts. So I wish that was a little bit more clarifying. Hold on, because I could have sworn I saw something that was a, a little bit better than that. 
Yeah, I like this better. The term avant-garde refers to innovative or experimental concepts or works, or a group of people producing them. Pushing boundaries with his development of Cubism, Pablo Picasso was a early 20th century uh, avant-garde, uh, I guess you can say, uh, practitioner. Yeah. Now, the word in French, avant-garde, actually means vanguard or advanced guard. Basically, a people or ideas that are ahead of their time. It usually refers to a movement in the arts like Dadaism or in politics like anarchism. Avant-garde can also be used as an objective to describe something that's cutting edge. You might have enjoyed that avant-garde dance piece in which performers threw marshmallows at each other even though it was confusing at times. So yeah, it does have uh, different uh, mixes and, and introductions to, uh, to thoughts or or trains of thoughts that you're not normally would, would hear or, or read. And I like what he was doing on that. I really do. I didn't practice it very much as much as I admire what he's doing, but that's, that's normal for me. I, I, just because I read and admire certain things doesn't mean I'm interested in trying to uh, practice those. In many instances, I had to come up with my own form of doing things in order to be able to, to cross my own bridges or, or get to what I needed to be comfortable with in order to create. Uh, here is a um, a good example of his uh, winning book, uh, Self-Portrait. Okay, Self-Portrait in a Convex Mirror. This is a portion of that poem, all right? The secret is too plain. The pity of it smarts. Makes hot tears spurt. That the soul is not a soul. Has no secret. Is small and it fits. It's hollow perfectly. It's room. Our moment of attention. That is the tune, but there are no words. The words are only speculation. So as I can see, he gets, he definitely uh, gets deep. Uh, and uh, I read a number of his reviews where they were they were similar in terms of of the of the kind of depth that um that he had about writing. So he wasn't purposely trying to do this to be elusive. That's just the, the kind of guy he was and the kind of artist he was. Okay. This was said about uh, Ashbury, and I like it because it, it makes a lot more sense. Ashbury, and this is what he said, Art at its best is the products of the conscious and the unconscious working hand in hand. And yeah, I definitely think that's the case uh, for him and, and maybe for art in general. I, I paraphrased it at the, at the end of that almost like a dream. Because if you think about it, you know, what is a dream, but maybe the conscious and the unconscious, you know, mixing together and coming up with a, an unusual, you know, performance of images or maybe even an unusual message that some people take to heart. Or other times you just wake up and go, man, that must have been important, but I can't remember almost nothing, which happens too. But I really think that for a brief period in time that uh, the conscious and the unconscious are, are, are really, uh, you know, connecting for what reason? I don't. I don't know if we really know, <laughs> but uh, I like. I like his explanation. It makes a lot of sense to me on how basic art works, and maybe even how he thought he was working. Okay. All right. So I'm going to read you some of his art reviews, which I really find uh, interesting, fascinating, especially uh, when you compare them to the uh, to the poems. The poems is like, man, this is completely different writing.
All right, here we go. All right, so. All right. Joan Mitchell calls herself a visual painter. She does not talk much about her work. Perhaps not out of reticence, but because the paintings are meaning and therefore do not have a residue of meaning which can be talked about. The recent upsurge of intellectual art and the resultant downgrading of abstract expressionism do, do not particularly surprise or alarm her. Working in Paris, she has always been fairly independent of her fellow artists, American or French, and it tends to go on as before. There'll always be painters around, she says. I'll take more than pop or op to discourage them. They've never been encouraged anyway. So we're back where we started from. There have always been very few people who really like painting like poetry. So I, I find it very, just very straightforward and just a, I don't know, a, a relaxed form of writing that you don't see otherwise. I can tell you one thing, when you read his poems, they don't feel like they're relaxed at all. That's for sure. All right, this is from the Art News of Paris, 1965, October. Marshall Raines' pop art does not have the banality, the aggression, or the moralizing undertones of the American product. He is concerned exclusively with pleasure. And if his work is still a little frightening, like most pop art, this is because of the ruthless way he suppresses everything but supposedly agreeable images and because of our deep puritanical reservations about pleasure. One does in fact begin to wonder how long hedonism could last in the world where ingress can come out of a bilious green or Vogue magazine models are flattered against conventional view of Nice in the luminous paint. Still resists apparently does himself as the apologist for the satisfactoriness of these pleasures, commercial and hollow as they may seem. This becomes an equivocally clear and a large sculpture of a crimson heart transfixed by a narrow arrow, excuse me, by a neon arrow, whose shaft is ornamented with a string of blinking colored lights. Like the film, The Umbrellas of Sherberg, it succeeds in establishing sentimentality as a legitimate source of art by first destroying it with satire, and then rebuilding in it its own ruins. Definitely um, straightforward and, 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 and descriptive, and uh, you just really get what he's trying to do. All right, now believe it or not, there's actually a school of thought out there. I know when I first came across it when I was younger as a writer, I'm like, are you kidding me? But this school of thought thinks that, and Ashbury is one of their, their examples, and I'm sure there's a few others, uh, but they believe that you shouldn't actually try to get it when you're reading it. You're not supposed to truly understand everything. It's just more about experiencing the words and the interplay and the art and all that's involved that's more important than anything else. Now, obviously, there's different schools of philosophy on this. It's not exactly my school. As much as I appreciate what he does and what he continues to do throughout his work, because I really do as, a, as an artist, there's a, there are definitely times, like I'm like everybody else, um, what the heck are you talking about? So it would be nice to have that once in a while, but sometimes you just, you just don't with him. And there is someone that wrote a piece that, that sort of helped uh, us understand what we shouldn't try to understand from Ashbury. I know you have to listen to this to believe it, okay? All right. 
Now, this is from, uh, uh, they're writing about, uh, not only his life's work, but they're writing about a particular uh, work that he did called Three Poems. Three large prose poems he did made them consider his masterwork. Uh, I thought that self-portrait was his masterwork, but others believe that this is his masterwork, probably on the more philosophical basis. And uh, I, I find it unusual because uh, Ashbury is difficult to define. You don't call him confessional because he's not. I mean, it's ridiculous to call him political because he's not. He's not even personal. Uh, and uh, philosophical? I don't know about that. But this is what they're saying, all right? A definitive work of the late 20th century American poetry and Ashbury's masterpiece. You may love what Ashbury does with language, washing it and wringing it out. You may find him too clever by three quarters, or you may think his work is overrated and his influence disastrous. But you can't ignore him if you care about poetry in English. For myself, this book is up there with the Espinades, the Tao Shideng, Cloud of Unknowing, Spinoza's Ethics, Fear and Trembling, and the Great Poetic Sequences of Rimbald and Rilke, the Tractus Logical Philosophicus, I and Tao, and Green Eggs and Ham. It is one of those great genre-transcending manuals of spiritual discipline. Charles Williams distinguished between the two ways in the spiritual life, the way of the affirmation or the way of rejection of images. What Asbury does here is walk the latter by way of the former, mixing the right hand and the left hand paths. If you find it just baffling and weird, try reading it without the obligation to get it. Those are in quotation marks. You can even go through it fast the first time, just letting the sounds of words and the rhythm of the prose work on you. You may find that the meaning comes into focus about halfway through, like one of those 3D pictures you have to stare at for a while. What Ashbury has done is to evoke the extreme nuance and imprecision of ordinary life, the way things happen in practice, not even ever in theory. The way every instant is constantly shading off the next moment and no experience stays put. You could be falling in love or hearing terrible news one day. Then after some finite duration, you'll be learning to juggle or changing a diaper or realizing you never like sushi. These things just happen, all in their bewildering thicket. And yet an order emerges. Was it always there? Is seeing it just a fraction of our editing? What has happened as we talk it to ourselves? Or do we live in a broader story, only part of which we are overhearing? Ashbury makes these questions not a theoretical diversion, but a lived mode of being, a prayer in the pulse. After this book, living inquiry means something new. It isn't for everybody, but for some, three poems can be an almost a breviary. I know. It's, just, it's amazing to even hear uh, that kind of a philosophy. I don't discount it because I take philosophy in general, you know, seriously, because it's another way of looking at something. So it's kind of hard to discount somebody else's way of looking at something. I mean, quite frankly, if someone's going to tell you that they admire the red car in front of them, but you think that the car is actually orange, I don't know. Who's to say if they're happy with it red or this is what they see? I mean, are they really wrong? Not, not really, because it's not that important in terms of that, as long as they're appreciating the car or appreciating the object before them, having some comment on it. And I think that's what's important. Now, here's pretty interesting here. Uh, this is another comment from somebody. And they uh, were mentioning how 
obscure he can be, Asbury. And he included it with one of his poems. So we'll read this, and then we'll read the poem. I thought I liked it myself. John Asbury's poem is extremely difficult, if not impenetrable. It does not work or mean like traditional verse, or even most contemporary poetry. It scarcely resembles Allen Ginsberg's poetry, or Ezra Pound's, or Sylvia Plath's, or Rod McEwen's. The title poem of his most recent collection, Self-Portrait in a Convict's Mirror, opens with these lines. As Parmigino did it, the right hand, bigger than the head, thrust at the viewer and swerving easily away as though to protect what it advertises, a few lettered panes, old beams, fur pleated muslin, a muslin, a coral string run together in a movement supporting the face, which swims toward and that away, the least the dead, except that what is in repose. I know you have to read it a couple of times to really get it. Uh, this is next poem I like of his. I think it has a little bit more, uh, I feel, uh, connection than you would normally get from his work. It's rare, but it's there. It's called Just Walking Around. That already gives me a title that makes me feel like, oh, maybe he's going to finally let his hair down. <laughs> All right, here we go. What name do I have for you? Certainly there is not a name for you in the sense that the stars have names that somehow they fit around just walking around. An object of curiosity to some, but you are too preoccupied by a secret smudge in the back of your soul to say much and wander around. Smiling to yourself and others, it gets to be kind of lonely, but at the same time off-putting, counterproductive as you realize once again that the longest way to the most efficient way, the one that looped around islands, and you always seem to be traveling in a circle, and now that end is near. The segments of the trip swing open like an orange. There is light in there and mystery and food. Come see it. Come not for me, but it. But if I'm still there, grant that we may see each other. I feel that's definitely one of his more connecting poems. I really do. And I really appreciate that, that this guy is difficult it, it can be. I remember um, hearing an interview one time with uh, with the great Austin, uh, Texas uh, uh, guitarist Eric Johnson, and he had said that he spent a year learning uh, a new um, Jimi Hendrix uh, tune that he would play on his guitar. He said that's how brilliant it was, how complex it was, that it took him that long to get into it. I think in many ways that's how Ashbury is for me. You just Pick up some things sometimes. You just want to read through it, try to do whatever you can to understand it, see if it has any meaning, see if it, what it rings through to you, see what it, it brings out in you. Maybe just the, the clang of the syllables and the clash of the words are enough to, to jolt something in your brain to, to make you move in a, you know, in a creative fashion. And maybe that's all he's supposed to do. Maybe that's what his whole work was supposed to be about. I, I guess we'll really never know that. I've read enough of the interviews to understand that he seems to not always understand what he was trying to do himself. I don't think he wanted to question it. He just did it. I don't know if that was also part of his philosophy or it's just, just uh, his gift of going about things. But that's pretty much how he uh, he described it in, in a number of his interviews, which I always found it in incredibly uh, fascinating over here. Uh, let me get um, one that I had over here that I wanted to check out. Oh. 
make me a moment over here. Yeah, I, I, I he had a very, very lengthy one, uh, particularly that was. Uh, I mean, if you're a, a, a fan of of his work or even what he was trying to do, it's just incredible how he went about this. It's called the Bennington Review, which he did in 1980, along with a writer named uh, David Remnick, who was still in college at the time, had these incredible questions for him, and he won a Pulitzer Prize himself later on, that, that writer, but this is pretty interesting. Okay. All right, so here we go. All right, so uh, they're asking him, the poet Charles Wright says that very often the first poet one reads has real passion and has a permanent effect. Do you think that happens to you at any degree? <laughs> I thought his answer was pretty ironic, but uh, that's that's who he is. Yes, I do. In my case, the poet W.H. Audnum. I'm usually linked to Wallace Stevens, but it seems to me that Auden played a greater role. He was the first modern poet that I was able to read with pleasure. I was about 15 or 16 at the time. I see not so much resemblances, but a similar way of persifying and making things concrete. Not many people see this in my work, and I don't think Auden himself e either did. He, he did select my Some Trees for the Yale Younger Poets Prize, and so he asked him, well, did you work with him at all? And he said, no, I didn't. The prize came about in a curious fashion. I knew Auden slightly, but I didn't dare show him my poetry. In fact, poets nowadays are much more nervy about thrusting manuscripts on older poets. It happens to me a lot, and I hate not to reply because I know how important it is to be encouraged at that age. But there's a limit on how much you can do. Anyway, I don't think Auden was ever that enthusiastic about my poetry. I had submitted to the sale with the Yale competition according to the rules and sent my manuscript in to the Yale University Press. He had decided not to award the prize that year. He didn't like any manuscripts, so he asked to see other manuscripts. I wrote a somewhat disaffected uh, preface in which he compared me to Rimbald, which was very flattering, of course, but I don't think he meant it to be as a compliment since he was very anti-French. Someone told me he had asked Autumn a few years later before he died, what well, he thought of my poetry, and he had said that he was never able to understand the line of it. <laughs> then they asked him next, what do you think about, what did you specifically learn from Auden's poetry? It's very hard to talk about influence, especially about one's own influences, since they don't really work in that linear way that literary critics would like to see. In the process of writing, you may flash on some poem that you read years ago and it will influence you to twist your line in a certain direction. But other than that, it's difficult to tell. What struck me about Auden was how unpoetic language he was using. It's the first kind to put me off and then put my interest in. There's a journalistic tone, sometimes a chatty conversational voice, or a kind of primitive Middle English type of voice he used even before the age of anxiety. So, uh, Again, as much as his work might seem invasive, and maybe even sometimes his answers might seem invasive, what I always really appreciated about him was that he wrote what he felt was important. He didn't question it, 
He didn't try to understand oftentimes where it came from, and oftentimes he didn't even even understand his own influences. And instead, instead of trying to be, you know, more more colorful in the interview and, and you know, pretty much tell a tale, he was just, you know, candid. And that always maybe sometimes doesn't help people when they're like, oh man, not even in this interview can I get any super information on. No, it's really hard to, to, to get an angle on that guy because I'm not really sure if. You know, in many ways, he, he had his own angle, so to speak. But he is definitely one of the masters. If you get a chance to check out a number of his works, I'll give you some examples over here. There's plenty of stuff you can find free on the Internet. And you can always check out a number of his interviews that are also available as well. He is considered one of the one of the masters of American poetry. And it's somebody that you really have to, um, I guess, you, you got to have a, like a bit of an addiction like I do to him to, to kind of get what he was trying to do and, and, and make something out of it for yourself. So I'm not really pretending that this is going to be the writer that everybody needs to go out there and read right away because they're going to get something because you might not. But I do think that at least on a one-time basis, you should expose yourself to his to his work and, and see if you get something from it. He's pretty, pretty fascinating. Uh, a real master of the language and, and definitely uh, one of the more honest and interesting poets that, that were ever out there. So I, I definitely appreciate you check him out. Now we have a, another wonderful show that's coming up in a couple of days. It is going to be episode 165. It's going to be the first time I've done an interview with uh, with editors from a magazine before. It's going to be from Bonfire Lit. They're a newer magazine. They do a lot of poetry and, and short fiction. They like to Harder stuff, but it's it's really really great stuff. I really appreciate them out being out there. Be the editors, uh, Leanne Denman and Rich uh, Boucher. I think I said that right too. <laughs> but um, definitely check that out in a couple of days over here. I think you're going to find that interview uh, fascinating. I'm really really happy with with having it, and hopefully we'll be able to do some more going down the line over here. All right, folks. Until next time. I know it's been a rough year, but stick with it. And God bless. Until next time. Sent to be human. This is. Classic Spotlight Series, thoughts on John Ashbery. Good night. Thank you for listening. Follow the show and support our efforts by visiting our sponsors at www.strengthtobehuman.com or purchasing an ebook at www.somapublishing.com.